Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Sheehy Skeffington, and I'm an assistant professor of social psychology at the LSE Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. It's a pleasure to welcome you to one of the last LSE public events of the Lent term. For those Twitter users in the audience, you'll see that the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE PBS. This event is being streamed live on Facebook in addition to Zoom, and it's being recorded for later posting on our LSE YouTube page and also LSE podcasts, presuming no technical difficulties. There will also be a chance for you to put your questions um, to Jim. Uh, to do so, you please use the Q&A feature on the bottom of your screen. They can be posed and voted on at any time. And at the end of the talks, I'll pose as many as I can um, to, to the speaker. When you're posing questions, please use your name and affiliation so that we can ensure a variety of perspectives. So it's my distinct honor to welcome uh, to the LSE Jim Sedanius. Jim is a John Lindsley Professor of Psychology and Memory of William James and also a Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Jim received his PhD at the University of Stockholm and has taught at several universities in the United States and Europe, including University of Texas at Austin, Princeton and UCLA, where he was most recently before his move to Harvard. Um, Jim has authored more than 330 scientific papers, and he's also received prestigious awards, such as the Harold Laswell Award for Distinguished Scientific Contribution in the Field of Political Psychology, and um, also a Career Contribution Award conferred by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Jim was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2007, and is also an elected fellow of the Society of Experimental Social Psychology and the Association for Psychological Science. Now, although I initially came across Jim's work through his early contributions to the study of ideology and cognitive functioning, he's now most widely known for developing, along with Felicia Prado, one of the most influential theories in social and political psychology, which aims to chart the multi-level dynamics of intergroup inequality. And this effort is to, to connect individual psychological processes with ideological discourses and institutional practices was really quite pioneering when it was first introduced in the early 1990s. This was a time when discussion of power or even inequality was very rare in psychology. Jim has thus been instrumental um, in expanding the lens of psychology to incorporate structural factors and in doing so bringing it into dialogue with even classic social theorists such as Marx and Gramsci. Yes, Jim's work is unique in ruffling feathers, not only on the political right, but also on the political left, because he also dares to bring in perspectives from biology and evolution to the study of the dynamics of intergroup inequality. So in this spirit of sparking debate among people of many disciplines and many persuasions, I'm sure Jim won't let us down today. Jim, thank you for coming to speak with us. I'll hand over to you and let you share your slides to begin the talk. Thank you, Jen. Thank you for that generous introduction. Um, I'm just going to make sure I can share a screen. Okay. Okay, I can, um, I regard myself as a sort of refugee from the 1960s civil rights and black power movements. And when I was actively engaged in these movements, my major concern was to try to eliminate systems of racism, sexism, classism, and depression that I would, uh, had experienced either directly or vicariously. And while the West, Western country, countries, the United States, Western Europe, and certain countries in 
the third world have made significant progress in allowing other people to um, follow their muse to um, to escape extreme levels of racism and oppression. The fact of the matter is I regard the efforts of the 1960s and 70s really to have failed um, because we did not clearly not achieve the goal of eliminating racial and class and gender oppression. They're still very much with us. And it occurred to me that we needed, really needed to rethink our understanding of oppression in general um, from almost from scratch and put together modules which would help us understand it better and understand why getting rid of systems of oppression was so difficult to achieve. So the, in order to try to gain some purchase over these questions, I, together with Felicia Prado, developed social dominance theory. And the basic observation of social dominance theory is that all social systems seem to be structured as group-based social hierarchies with one or a small group of people at the top of the social system and uh, people at the bottom of the social system and many more groups generally at the bottom than at the top. And this seems to be quite universal, even though there are dramatic differences in the level of oppression from one society to the other, um, the fact of social structural inequality seems to be um, universal. So having said that, you say the basic uh, assumptions of the theory are that since human social systems are ubiquitously structured as hierarchies, human social systems are probably predisposed to organize themselves as group-based social hierarchies. And that the common forms of social oppression, such as racism or slavery or sexism, nationalism, classism, sectarianism, speciesism, etc., are really special instantiations of this general tendency to form, maintain, uh, and reform group-based social inequality. And as Jennifer already mentioned, the major thrust of the theory is to try to understand and identify the multi-level mechanisms responsible for the creation, maintenance, and recreation of group-based social hierarchy, both at the individual, interpersonal level, the group level, um, the system level, the society level, and also look at the interaction between these various levels of activity. 
A social dominance theory argues that there are three, three primary types of group-based social hierarchy. One, and the most obvious one, and the least controversial one, is that built on age, that all human societies universally make a distinction between adults and minors. And we're all in agreement with this, and we need not spend a lot of time talking about it further. The second type of social hierarchy is a little more controversial, and it's the gendered system, or what we call patriarchy, that social dominance theory argues that male control of societies and control of females is a ubiquitous phenomena found in all societies at all times. And even though there are dramatic differences in the level of patriarchy, the fact of patriarchy seems to be a human universal. Now, there are such societies as matrilineal societies in which one's social identity is defined by the mother's line rather than the father's line. Um, so Jewish culture would be an example of a matrilineal society, but this, uh, we argue, are, is a fact that there are no human patriarchies in which social power is disproportionately in the hands of women. Now, there are some exceptions to this in the animal world. One exception to the, this law of patriarchy, you might call it, are bonobos, in which um, we can describe the social system among these great apes as matriarchal, in which the females have the majority of power. A second exception is the Moriki monkey of the New World, the spider monkey, in which both male and female have uh, equal amounts to say, equal amounts of power, which really could be one of the few examples of a gender egalitarian social system. A third exception to the law of patriarchy is found among the lemurs, uh, lemur uh, monkeys, in which the female is the dominant animal over males. Meerkats of Southern Africa is another example of a mammalian species, which is matriarchal in um, functioning. That's, um, another matriarchal example are the orca whale, in which the females control or have a disproportionate amount of power within the social group. And lastly, um, the most dramatic exception to this law of patriarchy can be found among the spotted hyena, in which this, the female animal, which is the largest, strongest, more aggressive, and more politically influential, 
of the two sexes. The third and last type of group-based hierarchy is what we call the arbitrary set hierarchy. And an arbitrary set hierarchy is a, um, a arbitrarily defined, socially constructed distinction between any two groups. It could be um, race, tribe, class, religious, sect, caste, nationality, clan, lineage, or minimal groups, or any other made-up group that one can think of. In the basic primitive in this distinction is the in-group, out-group, us versus them distinction, which is universal. And it varies in terms of the severity of the oppression based on these distinctions. But the fact of the matter is that this seems to be a universal, basically serving the function of creating us-them distinctions. Um, the theory of gendered prejudice is developed to try to understand and appreciate the gendered nature of arbitrary set hierarchy. So one of the first arguments we can make is that arbitrary set hierarchy must be understood as a gendered phenomenon. This means that on average, males will display higher levels of arbitrary set aggression, xenophobia, discrimination, and social predation and social dominance orientation and will females, everything else being equal. And this higher level of generalized xenophobia can be found among other species of great apes besides humans, that is to say, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, bonobos. The third argument that we're going to make is in general that outgroup males rather than outgroup females will also tend to be the targets of arbitrary set aggression. Not only will they be the perpetrators disproportionately, but they will be subject to arbitrary set discrimination more than females will. And why should this be the case? Why should there be a difference in the tendency to form discrimination and arbitrary set interactions among males and among females? And we, our thinking here has been heavily inspired by Charles Darwin and his sexual selection theory and Robert Trivers and his parental investment theory. And basically, our argument um, suggests that males and females occupy slightly different reproductive spaces and are confronted with slightly different reproductive constraints, opportunities, and challenges. So while the obligatory reproductive investment for males is generally uh, no greater than fertilization of female eggs, 
the act of reproduction is substantially more costly for females and for males and includes the cost of gestation, birthing, lactation, and the non-negligible risk of death in childbirth. Because of these different reproductive environments, males and females will deploy to slightly different and yet politically consequential reproductive strategies. Because of the extraordinary, the relatively high cost of reproductive efforts required of females, a lot of her em the emphasis in the female reproductive strategy will be on rearing the offspring that she has. Whereas there will be a slightly different emphasis among males, which will be increased mating efforts compared to females. There'll be behavioral consequences of these different strategies. Because of the high cost of reproduction for females, there'll be a relatively high investment in offspring for females, a higher level of mate choosiness, and a preference for high status and high provisioning mates. Whereas for males, there'll be a relatively low investment in each offspring, a relatively high effort devoted to the acquisition of social power, social status, and control of resources, the kinds of qualities that would be attractive to females, which will set up high levels of competition among males and often lethal competition in order to gain power, social status, and resources. Well, there will be a feedback mechanism between male versus female reproductive strategies. And since to overcome the reticence and choosiness a matrizing among females, males will counter with coercive um, and dominance-oriented strategies vis-a-vis -vis females, which will help contribute to the development of patriarchy. And arbitrary set hierarchy will be primarily um, the extraction of social value social goods and social status from other males via the extractive male versus male coalitions. Now, if this reasoning is correct and valid, there should be a couple of hypotheses we can derive from it. One is that is what we call the invariance hypothesis, that levels of xenophobia, social predation, um, and social dominance will be greater among females than among males. So this inequality should hold. To get an idea of what um, SDO implies, 
it's been defined by a series of items and scales, which we've developed over the years. Items like, questions like, to get ahead in life, it's sometimes necessary to step on other groups. Inferior groups should be, should stay in their place. Superior groups should dominate inferior groups and the obverse of all of that, which is all groups should be given an equal chance in life. Now, one of the most thoroughly um, validated assumptions of social dominance theory concerns the, the gender difference in social dominance orientation between males and females. And its latest um, confirmation of that this statement is true is found in a meta-analysis conducted by Lee Prado and Johnson in 2011, which used a 101 samples of 28,000 respondents across 16 countries. And in neither of these cases, were people able to find a case in which social dominance orientation among females was higher than among males. It simply never occurred. The second hypothesis, which sort of falls out of these, this list of assumptions I presented to you in the beginning, is perhaps the most controversial and the one I hope we'll get some chance to talk about in detail. It's called the subordinate male target hypothesis. Now, if we define the term ASD as arbitrary set discrimination, being that discrimination one suffers by virtue of being, by virtue of being a member of an arbitrary set group, then the thesis basically says that the arbitrary set distinction suffered by males will be greater than that suffered by females, which might or might not be greater than zero. There might, in fact, be no instance of arbitrary set discrimination among females, um, but most of the activity in this regard is suffered by males. And there's a, if you look at the literature carefully, there's a great deal of literature across various domains of study which are consistent with this ASD hypothesis. And the evidence can be found in survey evidence, in archival evidence, in laboratory and field experiments across multiple domains looking at things like the labor market, the criminal justice system, the housing market, the educational sector, the resale sector, and hate crimes. So one example of what this might imply was in a study conducted by Farley and Allen in 1987. And it looks at, at the value of one additional year of advanced education on the hourly wage enjoyed by men and women, whites and blacks 
1960 and 1980. Starting in 1960, there was found that for every additional year of advanced education that white males got, they got 78 cents more per hour in increased wages, while black males only got 56 cents more per hour. So there's clearly um, a racial distinction between white and black males. And that was in 1960. In 1980, things improved. White males now earned 96 more cents more per hour for every additional year of education, while black males earned 69 cents more per hour. So people are getting paid more, but the distinction, the racial distinction between black males and white males stayed the same. That's a very different outcome when you look at females, the, the difference between white and black females. In 1960, black females earned 60, 62 cents more per hour for any additional year of advanced education, uh, and slightly more than white females did. By, 19, by 1980, we find that black females earned 79 cents more per hour, while black white females earned 64 cents more per hour. In these data, in these differences between men and women, we see some evidence of sexism or patriarchy. It's clear males, especially white males, earn more than females do. But there is no evidence of racial discrimination among females. There is only evidence of patriarchy. It's not the case that women are suffering, black women are suffering more from racial discrimination than black men are, although white women are. To see whether or not this result held, held up, we repeated the, the analysis looking at census data. And here we found evidence, once again, of white males earning more than black males but the difference between females, white and black, was substantially smaller. And this inequality um, is consistent with the ASD inequality in that this difference between white and black females was substantially smaller than the difference between white and black males. Similar results findings can be seen in a major study of inequality conducted by the economist Charles Chetty. And he looked at 20 million um, parental and offspring um, income differences. So we're looking at the, on the y-axis here, the income level for males 
white and black as a function of the amount of the percentile income of their parents. So you see here that the more the parents make, the more the children make. And we also see a pretty consistent difference in the income levels of blacks compared to whites up and down the income scale. But if we turn our attention to females, we see that no evidence that there is racial discrimination in income levels for black females. If anything, they earn slightly more than white females up and down the scale of income. As a matter of fact, what these data imply and show that the only diff the reason why there is an income difference between whites and blacks is due to the income difference between white and black males. This is not driven by a difference among females. Lastly, shoot no shoot experiment. African-Americans have been arguing for decades that they are treated more harshly by police than by um, non-police. That they are targeted in particular for lethal violence. So what to follow up on that idea, since you can't, to try to experiment with it, Ashby Plant and her colleagues set up a shoot no shoot experimental paradigm in which people were shown video clips of men and women, blacks and whites, who had an ambiguous object in their hands. And your task was to decide whether or not this, this thing in the hand, this object was a weapon or not. And if it was a weapon, they would have be shot. And there are two kinds of errors people can make in this experiment. Either shooting an unarmed civilian instead of having a gun in their hand, and I'd have a cell phone. So that's, those are the errors in the white bars. And, or you can make an error by not shooting an armed target. And we're going to first look at the difference between white and black males. Consistent with the complaints coming from the black community for a long time, there was a significant tendency in the experimental paradigm for black males to be shot, unarmed black males to be shot significantly more often than white males were. So this is consistent with people's lived experience. But if we compare females, the tent, there is no greater tendency for black females to be shot at higher rates than white females are. And there is no evidence, in other words, of racial discrimination among females. The only racial difference is found among males. So to summarize, what we've discovered is and argued is that arbitrary set 
prejudice and discrimination are gendered phenomena. Meaning, meaning that males will have a tendency to show more xenophobic, socially predatory uh, behavior and high, have higher levels of dominance orientation than females, everything else being equal. Also consistent with subordinate male target hypothesis, we're gonna argue that males are more likely not only to be the greater perpetrators of dominance activities, but are likely to be the um, primary targets of this arbitrary set discrimination. And if egalitarian social relations are as successful at all to develop, it'll be very extraordinarily difficult for humans to maintain um, egalitarian relationships within social systems. And I'll leave it at that and uh, wait for Jennifer for questions. Thank you, Jim. And thank you for not um, shortchanging us and uh, coming along with um, some new data and some very provocative ideas. Um, we've already got a couple of reactions to those questions. Um, I just wanted to, to start off with, with a couple of questions, yeah, a little bit of a conversation between us first, before we kind of open out and give the audience a chance to, um, to send some more questions through as well. Um, so here we go. Um, one of the, uh, this idea of looking at um, racism through a gendered lens or, or looking at se sexism through a, through a racial lens, and we'll come to that in a bit. This idea of looking at racism through a gendered lens seems to be very relevant to a lot of what we're talking about here today in London. Um, there's been a report that's come out from um, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, which was commissioned by the number 10 Downing Street, our current prime minister. And what, what it's highlighting are um, what it claims to be closing race gaps in educational and some job market outcomes. It's arguing that there are, there are no ethnic disparities, even in some health outcomes. Um, and they're even suggesting that this is evidence of the advancement of minorities in the UK that qualify um, to see the UK as a model for other white majority countries. And what would this perspective mean for looking at that data in a different way? Um, I'm presuming that they're pooling this data across men and women. Yes, they're, they're probably doing that. Yeah. So we have no way of discovering or deciding whether or not this new study you're talking about in the UK is consistent with our data until they break it down yeah. by gender. But but what but what pooling data by gender might offer? I mean, certainly what that seems to suggest um, to me hearing you talk is that um, is that it's really masking what black men and what minority men are going through in the UK. Um, right. Because it's it's pooling it and kind of um, uh, allowing them to making it look like they're getting the benefits that maybe minority women are getting. Right. And that's some of the. I'm not assuming that it's being done maliciously or, or deliberately, but if you just look at aggregate data, you're going to miss these nuances. It's really critical that we make a distinction based on gender and trying to understand the dynamics of discrimination. 
Great. So speaking of um, nuances, I've got a question I'll just get to pull through now um, from Sabina Paiwand, who's a, one of our um, MSC students. Um, she asked, could there be an explanation for rate, wage increase differences worth thinking about, um, such as intersectionality? Um, might the male, black, female, black comparison hold in the face of different qualities of race discrimination faced by black men and black women? So I guess another way of asking that question is saying that maybe through the metrics you're using, it looks like black women are doing better. But are there other metrics, are there other forms of discrimination and oppression that black women might be suffering that aren't coming through in, in that would be measured differently? You know, that's a very good question. I mean, one of the things that's got, what I've been trying to do over the years is to look to see the degree to which these basic uh, arbitrary set inequality phenomena generalize across different uh, domains. So looking whether an attitude applies in the criminal justice system or the, the, the financial uh, affairs system or educational levels etc. And so far, we have found no evidence that it, we've not found a domain in which it doesn't apply. One might argue, and it's been suggested, that this might not hold if we look at the sexual attractiveness market, that uh, Black women do not benefit from uh, higher or lower levels of discrimination compared to black men, that they in fact face a kind of double jeopardy by being victimized by virtue of their gender and their arbitrary set membership. We have not studied the sexual uh, market yet. And it's somewhere, it's something I think it's gotta be done to see the degree to which this holds, this exception holds. And if it does hold the exception, I would want to know why. What makes that situation so different from all these other domains of life? There's another suggestion from Ilka Glibes, who's a faculty member in our department. Um, she asks about health disparities among women in the USA, especially around maternity care. I think some of that shows some quite startling outcomes for black women. Have you looked at that? Well, that it's that's a difficult um, area to. It's like comparing apples and oranges. Um, since men don't carry babies, they don't get pregnant, they don't give birth, uh, and their biologies are different. The two sexes are slightly different. It's impossible to make these kind of head-to-head -head comparisons when the um, organisms have such different um, functions or such different characters in general. So you can compare men and women in the healthcare system um, for diseases that both men and women are likely to get, but not otherwise. But I suppose if, if there are lots of other ways in which we'll, women are vulnerable in society that are particularly racialized, then it does it does matter for 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 a broader argument about the extent to which arbitrary set hierarchy is playing out, even if you can't empirically do this do those comparisons. 
Or if we can't empirically uh, support it, then I don't know where that puts us. I mean, we have to be able to empirically confirm the implications of the theoretical musings we're doing, right? Well, except that um, if you want to um, talk about the extent to which black females or minority females are suffering um, racial bias, then data related to maternity care and to, you know, even though we can't do a cross-sex comparison, we still can do a cross-race comparison, which at least uh, makes sure that those those aspects of subordination aren't neglected. Yeah, well, that we're not denying that um, there isn't... Um, discrimination that women are facing, which is quite true, simply saying that in comparisons to men, the racial discrimination that women suffer is relatively small, if existent at all. Um, And there is some evidence that it does exist slightly, but it's... um, We just need to understand that it is a... Phenomena which is not evenly distributed across the genders. Okay, thank you. I'm going to stick on the gender question and then we'll open it to wider areas of theory. I just want to give, um, um, to pose this question from Sakira Hudson, postdoc at mm-hmm. Yale University, obviously one of your former students, as am I, former Sidonius lab mate. Um, so Jim says, uh, sorry, Kira says, at least half of your findings where you see a bigger racial gap amongst men than women could be turned on their head and rearticulated to be a bigger sex gap among white people than black people. So black women are primarily experiencing racism, but not necessarily sexism. How would you go about disentangling these two hypotheses, both of which could be supported by your data? And she's mentioning that there is other data as well that speaks to this possibility. Well, it depends on the question you're asking. The question I'm trying to answer, get an answer to is the degree to which or the factors which determine arbitrary set hierarchy, um, not what the factors that determine levels of sexism. Because I'm suggesting that both black and white women suffer from sexism equally. They're both treated as females with everything that that implies, with this one possible exception concerning sexuality or physical attractiveness, that might be one. But otherwise, females are both of of all arbitrary set categories are going to be treated as females to the same extent. And the data seem to be consistent with that. But but I suppose um, what Kira is saying is that it's, it's, you know, I think I take your point that if if you if you want to know where racism is is hitting the most, it's male. Your your data are showing the data you've reviewed are showing that it's male on male. But if you want to look at sexism, um, the argument is that um, being especially in the shoot don't shoot paradigm, that being being a woman isn't as protective for a black uh, female as it is for a white female. That that black women are. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. But the question wasn't looking at that. I mean. If we can go back, well, one of the things that the Ashby Klan data showed was that black women and white women were equally likely to be shot if they were unarmed, right? The only area in which white women had an advantage over black women 
was in shooting, being shot when they were armed. So if people were much less likely to shoot white females under any circumstance, especially um, when they were armed. So, but otherwise the, the black females were not likely to suffer more and they suffered no more than the, love, the probability of being shot if they were black male. So blacks um, were risking different levels based on gender. Great, thank you. I'm going to move now from, um, from thinking about gender just to thinking about racism more broadly, and particularly the notion of systemic racism that's, been, that's much more uh, common in public discourse these days um, uh, than it was previously. And one of the things I find that's most helpful about social dominance theory um, is that it says that we need to think about the statements that are made about racial groups and behaviours of groups in society need to be understood in terms of the agendas that they serve. So you talk about legitimizing myths and you talk about them being hierarchy enhancing versus hierarchy attenuating. And then we need to see statements about, you know, whether um, black people are working hard enough as, as, as effectively being used to, to legitimize and delegitimize um, efforts to combat inequality. And what this means is that um, it's a different, it's, this is a kind of a way of seeing racism as systemic because it means that we, racism isn't this internal trait of certain individuals. It's not about racist versus non-racist. It's about racism, racist statements being used in an ideological way in order to advance agendas that are about maintaining the current distribution of power of resources versus challenging it. Um, I mean, what would you what would you think social dominance theory has to say then about efforts to combat systemic racism? Where does that leave us in terms of how we can address systemic racism, given that a lot of the focus is on on trying to address racist attitudes? Well, one important uh, difference between social dominance theory and its and similar kinds of reasoning is that we look at racism not as an end in, in itself, but purely as an instrument. Um, it, so oppression doesn't need racism. It, it needs an in-group, out-group distinction. And it can be painted with a racial brush or a religious brush or a um, nationality brush, whatever. But it's simply not, it's important that we not put too much emphasis on racism and forget the fact that it's simply an arbitrary tool to be used uh, to enforce in-group, out-group distinctions. So where does that leave us then, Jim, Jim, in terms of egalitarian social change? Uh, Celestine Alkaroji, one of the fellows in our department, has said, um, from the perspective of social dominance theory, is all egalitarian activism doomed, or does it just cause us to, to, to focus on a different place? Well, that's a good question. Um, we know, in fact, that, well, that there are major differences in the level of oppression across different social systems. So if we compare Afghanistan to Sweden, for example, we see dramatic differences. So we know that things can be improved. What we don't know is whether or not it's possible to get rid of our oppression, sexism, or patriarchy, or arbitrary sex discrimination based on anything to eliminate it. It doesn't seem to be possible. 
I've not been able to identify one social system which is which would fit the category of an egalitarian society. We're really talking about differing levels of inequality. Do you think that uh, social dominance theory is often taken to be to be then therefore supporting the normative claim that we shouldn't try to fight? hierarchy because it's somehow seen as natural and it will, it will always be there. How would you respond to that? Well, not at all. I mean, I think it's important for us to understand its nature, to not think that it can be defeated with a one and done policy, that it's the drive towards domination of others is a constant. It varies across situations. It expresses itself in different ways, and it manifests at different levels of severity. But the tendency is always there, just as the tendency to include others, to empathize with others, is equally natural. And it's the level of oppression in any given society at any given time, you suggest, is a balance between these two sets of forces, between the darker dominance forces, the arbitrary enhancing forces, and the hierarchy attenuating forces. But this battle between he's and ha's, between domination and inclusion, is a constant one, which is not going away. It's not something that can be fixed for all time. One has to constantly be on the lookout for change in the wrong direction. And I mean, one of the, another kind of more difficult aspect of what you're claiming and what the theory originally claimed was that even situations where you do get an inversion of hierarchy, because sometimes you do get a revolution and, and an oppressed group takes over and gains power. Mm-hmm. Um, you've argued that this generally leads to further systems of domination where just it's flipped. And now a previously oppressed group then starts to dominate the new group. Do you still stand by that claim or do you think there are any conditions that might that might moderate that, uh, especially looking at intra-group dynamics? So, you know, how, how can we make sure that doesn't happen? Okay, first, Jen, I think it's important that we make very clear and sharp distinctions between degrees of and existence of Right. We know that we can affect the degree of discrimination by uh, working within the legal system, uh, operating with propaganda, training, education. We know all of these and uh, lack of scarcity. We know that this can be moderated. What, I, what I'm simply arguing is that it can't be made to go away. It doesn't cease to exist. It's always, it's a constant, this battle between uh, inclusion and equality and domination are almost, they're almost co-equals. And one will gain the upper hand over the other, depending on the context, but it doesn't work permanently. And, and what about a revolutionary context? So th- does that hold even where the, the groups completely invert in their position? Yeah, well, what we say about revolutions, revolutions have all, from my perspective, have all been failures. Um, 
the French Revolution certainly was, in which the Russian Revolution, the Chinese, the Cuban, the Egyptian, uh, the Arab Spring, um, I mean, you identify the Mexican Revolution. What ha ends up happening is that former oppressed become the latter day oppressors or some other third group having not been heard of before comes in and replaces uh, the dominating group. Uh, an example of that, of that kind of process is wonderfully depicted in this classic film by Marlon Brando called Viva Zapata about the Mexican Revolution in which the farmers managed to overthrow the ruling um, elite only to replicate the system of oppression in their own, on their own to do that. But sure, just to push on a little bit on this, Jim, so that we're not left too depressed. I mean, perhaps this, perhaps that brings us back down to the individual level. And it's because of the levels of SDO, of the people who get in control of these groups. And maybe it's the high SDO people who, who then come into power once the previously low power group comes to dominate. Couldn't we use, you know, measures of SDO, screening for SDO, interventions on SDO to try to um, prevent that from happening? Thinking about selection of leaders? Well, you'd have to get the everybody or the powerful enough people to buy into this screening um, process that you're suggesting, screening them with SDO. I don't think, first of all, the other side of this equation, the dominators, the he's of the world, are not going to remain inert while you're trying to legislate them out of, exist, out of existence. They're going to react and counterattack. And so the, no side is ever going to win. No one wins the war completely at the end. There's always this tug of war back and forth between levels of oppression. We need both characteristics, perhaps. So if our species were ever invaded, by giant arachnids from Alpha Centauri, we might be very happy with having our he's around to protect us. Um, speaking of SDO, and again, being optimistic, I'll just uh, go back to the questions from others. Um, Ariel Bothan from the Behavioral Insights team asks, what's the single most effective intervention for lowering, lowering an individual's SDO? Education. Okay. Um, the data show pretty consistently that the more highly educated you are, the lower your levels of xenophobia and SDO tend to be. Being in a non-threatening situation, increasing people's security and sense of, um, of security decreases levels of SDO. So we know that there are several being included uh, instead of being isolated, increases level, uh, decreases level of SDO. But what I'm, again, sort of to reiterate, arguing, it's important for us to understand that we never quite get rid of it altogether. 
it is always there lingering in the background, just as in inclusiveness is always there. You cannot legislate or kill all ha's in the world. They are a resilient bunch and they will always come back. Um, okay, so we've got a few questions about, um, you talked about like this being a constant struggle and of course, who's got the money and who's got the, 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 the power are key to this. And that's something that, you know, social dominance theory powerfully said to psychology. We need to look at who's got the money and who's got the power, not just status. Um, I just want to bring in two questions here um, related to that. One is from John Mason from UCL. He says, do we need to think about class? Class was kind of missing from the analysis. Uh, Louis Kernan, one of our students here, MSC students, says, when there's such financial incentive to perpetuate discrimination, is it the case that only an anti-capitalist approach is capable of going back to truly egalitarian social systems? Okay. Um, to start with the first question first, class is definitely part of the analysis. We used race simply as one example of an arbitrary set. Class is another one, or religiosity is a third, or nationality is a fourth, or being a um, Chicago, Chicago White Sox fan is, a, is another one. So these are really just arbitrary, situationally contingent distinctions between groups. Um, and what was the second question again? I, do we need to, so given that it's about who has the, the power and resources then is a, a kind of radical anti-capitalist agenda the only way to actually properly dismantle it and arrive at egalitarian social arrangements? Well, I might be in favor of a radical anti-capitalist agenda if we could find evidence that it achieved, it didn't eventually like every other major change degenerate into another form of tyranny. Um, I can, again, think of, I'm trying to think of a successful revolution and I can't. We, we can think of lots of revolutions that made things better temporarily, which then degenerate and make things worse. But uh, a radical anti-capitalist agenda is probably not um, compatible with uh, human psychology. Well, it depends which part of human psychology, maybe. Um, maybe um, it depends what the what aspects of our human nature are evoked by different cultural, socio-historical, political, ideological conditions. Right. And what we don't know is what kinds of forces, what conditions are ripe to produce stable egalitarian relationships. It would be wonderful to know that, but we don't know that. For me, for instance, living in Sweden was an eye-opener in the 1980s because there was efforts to increase or to fully realize in the 1980s uh, social democracy or industrial democracy in which the workers and all the major companies would own a part, would own shares in the capitalist enterprises. That would have brought a kind of economic equality had it been 
successful or had it been legislated, but it was stopped in its tracks by owners of capital. So we don't know how successful that would have been. And then, of course, it's never been tried. Okay. Um, it sounds like you're laying out a bit of a challenge maybe to some people in our audience. So hopefully they'll go away and work at that and, and at least do so with, um, with an unflinching eye to our human nature and its dark side too. Going back to this idea of, um, of these arbitrary set categories and socially constructed categories and, and your focus on race as an example, I had a question from Martin Bauer, who's another faculty member in our department. He says, could you say something on the historical selection or recruitment of this basic category of race in the first place? You know, uh, what's the role of history in, in this, the increasing or decreasing, decreasing salience of particular arbitrary, uh, particular arbitrary set forms of discrimination and identification? Well, I think the idea of, I mean, the idea of race and racial differences is relatively new phenomena in the Western world. And most people uh, didn't have a conception of inherent racial differences. That's something that came up around to justify slavery, primary and the slave trade. So it's a temporary arbitrary set, it might go away or it might not, but if it does, it doesn't matter because it'll simply be replaced by another ideology. And it really is important to look at the racism as a system, as an ideology, and like any other ideology, and that it serves to justify power differences between social groups. So if there was a, a, a radical uh, reconfiguration in who had what in society, then we'd also see a reconfiguration of the ideologies that circulate um, and the ones that are most relevant to the current arbitrary set, maybe it would be class-based or, or gender-based. Right, they, exactly. They would be the ones that would, That'll would be determined by the context, the social and historical context, whether it be based on race or religion or nationality or, I mean, you name it whatever arbitrary distinction means makes most sense to you. Those distinctions will always be there. So I think the most important thing to, the, the important way to think about this is in discriminatory primitives. The us-them distinction is really the, is really the, the primitive. Everything else is based on that tendency that humans have to create distinctions between we and they, us and versus them. That's where it all starts. And do you, do you think then that the particular pattern of distribution of power and resources in any particular society, that's what decides what, what our salient arbitrary set groups in that society? Well, we don't know that. I mean, it would be nice uh, area of research to determine which context and which other ideologies might be facilitative of um, relatively egalitarian situations or not. We simply don't know at the present time, but it's a right field for research. Great. Um 
and and of course this is consistent with evolutionary psychology perspectives which would also say that there's nothing in particular about race that it's about coalitions and that's right that that what matters there is who has power and resources now do you mind if i just shift this a little bit to thinking about the broader context maybe there are aspects of broader societal conditions such as uh, scarcity this, there's one particular question here from Osgur Okte University of Neuchatel what would you say about the relationship of the economic state of affairs and the racist or sexist attitudes did racism increase after the 2008 crisis i just want to add on to that as well a consideration of the covid-19 pandemic where does that leave us obviously a situation of vast economic scarcity uh, is here but also um visceral experiences of forms of solidarity um and of of the redistributive economic mechanisms that we hadn't had previously well, what is your take on on um or what would a social dominance theory say about um the consequences of the upheaval brought about by the pandemic well i think it's i think we've got pretty good evidence that um racism or arbitrary set conflict let's put it that way to make put express in its broadest terms asd conflict is conditioned by or affected by levels of threat that's one very important one people who are threatened uh, have a tendency to um minimize the area of concern the circle of concern uh which leads to low lower levels of empathy which leads to greater levels of of oppression so that is one issue scarcity is another um ed- education is a third as i said before so these are all that uh, factors which would help to mitigate extreme levels of hierarchy um but we don't know what would produce the antithesis of hierarchy which is egalitarianism i'm suggesting that it's important for us to recognize that it doesn't pertain it's not there the I, the dream of egalitarianism is there and people have been thinking along those lines and using that as an ideal for generations but the existence of that the achievement of that state doesn't seem to be actualized anywhere there there, there was a question and i've um, i think i've um lost the specific person who asked it about um about which society is closest to yeah so this was Gavin Abraham at California Polytechnic University student uh, in your opinion which country is currently making the most progress in promoting equal opportunity and dismantling systematic oppression through government policy i say um, one of them um, one of my favorite countries along these lines is new zealand which is produced even though there are uh, ethnic differences between the maori for instance and the europeans it's a relatively mild hierarchy and there's efforts to try to extend the privileges of citizenship to all of its citizens regardless of background they've made good progress the scandinavian social democracies 
of Northern Europe made good progress up until um, the 1980s, 90s, uh, and now they are regressing in their devotion to high to egalitarianism as a as a reaction to the thrust of the pressure, the migration pressure from the south, from uh, the Middle East and from Africa, and they're having to close their borders and the reaction politically in these countries is to become more um, hierarchical and more aggressive. And we see signs of that in Italy and Hungary and Sweden and Norway, etc. Do you think there's an interaction there between um, what's happening in migratory patterns, but also um, the economic scarcity that the country itself is experiencing and the, the dominant kind of neoliberal norms that are used to interpret uh, uh, how problematic it is for a country to be in debt or why it is that austerity is an adequate response to something like a pandemic or a financial crisis? Well, so in, immigrants can be framed as the problem by political elites, uh, in, but usually it's in context of uh, economic relations that were problematic in the first place. Right. Well, I just agree with that. I mean, that's a sort of a statement that you're making, and I, which I agree with. So, I, I mean, we're, we're on the same page there. And I suppose um, what the theory is helpful for is in terms of thinking, helping us to think about um, critically about statements, as, you know, statements made that are interpreting the problems that a country faces um, and the fact that they themselves might be legitimizing myths that play hierarchy right. this is attenuating roles there's so much more to social dominance theory jim there's so there's there's stuff on institutional discrimination that i didn't even go to you you have this notion of hierarchy enhancing and, and attenuating institutions um there is lots to talk about in the ideological space uh, i know that you have a your classic work on this 1999 book i'd highly recommend to those here and i know that you're working on a on an updated um version of it where you're going to mm -hmm. develop some of these ideas i think it's so relevant to so many issues that we've got going on today and and provocative in many ways and, and unsettling of assumptions on, on all sides. Um, so I really appreciate you coming here today to face uh, some of those questions and some of those uh, challenges and um, getting us to try to think, even though we're psychologists, in, in really systemic ways about, um, about intergroup inequality. Well, well, we'll close the session now. We've run out of time. Lots more questions, many people in attendance. Thank you everyone for coming. Um, thank you to the organizers and a big thank you to you, Jim, for all of your work.